Welcome to the Light Bears Institute podcast, where we seek to improve biblical literacy by discussing key storylines and themes in Scripture. Welcome back to our Light Bears podcast. This is Brett Art. I'm the campus director for Light Bears Fayetteville, and we're going to continue our walkthrough of uh, systematic theology or theology in practice. Today, we're going to look at biblical theology part one. And to help us do that, we have our very own staffer, Kevin McCollum. Kevin, how are you, man? Hey, I'm doing great, Brett. Excited. So Kevin, last night we talked about biblical theology, and, and one of the things that, that we talked about at the end was, was how an understanding of biblical theology uh, really shaped our understanding of Scripture and, and was really foundational in our faith. And so I uh, just wanted you to share a little bit about how that's been impactful in, in your own story, and your own personal uh, faith. Yeah, great. Um, well, first of all, I didn't come to Christ until 15. Um, and at age 15, I immediately was um, involved in a church and got in a youth Sunday school class. And I remember sitting in that class, listening to these stories um, as a teacher would talk about some guy named Daniel. And I couldn't remember if he was the one, you know, in a den or if he was the one that had the slingshot or under the <laughs> ocean or in the belly of a fish. And, and the people around me were just bored to tears, all the high school guys, because they'd heard it their entire lives, all these stories. And I remember just being hungry to learn this stuff and knew they had to be something very important, right, as a new believer. And um, so eventually I did learn the stories. And the way they were taught to me and the way that I understood them um, were, were standalone stories. And they always had some sort of a moral lesson, right? right? Yep. And so um, example, uh, you talked about this last night, but examples, Daniel lies in or David and Goliath. So David and Goliath, right? Um, we all know the story, we think, all right, well, what that story means is that we're supposed to have faith when we, tr- we see these giants in our lives and, and that, you know, God's going to provide these stones and there's going to be this victory we're going to see. And we just have to have courage. We have to have strength. We have to, you know, have um, the fortitude to kind of press on. And, and it's not that that isn't a message that can have some importance, but it isn't really having to do with David and Goliath. Right. <laughs> right. Like there's something bigger going on. And it wasn't until I understood that, that that story really, really meant what it was intended to mean. And then it really changed all of scripture as I understood what we call like the meta narrative or the big story. So what is happening with David and Goliath? What's happening is God is putting himself on display. And we read in the text so that everyone will know that the God of Israel is the one true God. That's what the whole point of the David and Goliath story, the Daniel and the lions did. So Darius makes this proclamation, right? That everyone in the land can worship God Daniel's God only, right? So that's really um, the point of all of these right. great stories. And as you unpack scripture, you see that's really the point of the whole, the whole thing, right? As we've talked about and, and set this sort of thesis statement through our institute, that, that the whole point is God glorifying himself by dwelling among a holy covenant people, where you see that over and over and over again. And when you understand that, scripture begins to come alive in a different way. Right. So when you begin to understand that, you see that there's a, a story that all these stories hang on that continue to undergird, to lift our eyes to the one who wrote the scripture for us so that our focus isn't on us and this little moral understanding we right. might have. The focus is on the glory of God and the fact that he redeemed us and brought us to himself that Amen. he might pour his glory through us. Well, And that's big. Again, I mean, as we talked about this last night, that's, that's my personal story. Of It's not just 66 books that are standalone. 
but they all tell to, to, to that phrase you said, that's, it's that meta-narrative, it's that grand theme of God glorifying himself by dwelling with the Holy Covenant people. And, and that's, that was instrumental in my faith. And really, on top of that, building off of that, as we talked last week on systematic theology and deriving theology from that, that that's, the, that's that kind of foundation. And so, real quick, I mean, yeah, I know you mentioned that we've talked about biblical theology. I think we talked about this some last week, but, but just what's a, a quick definition of biblical theology? Yeah, so systematic, which, you know, after a couple of talks here on biblical theology, the rest of this year will be on systematic theology. It tends to be topical. So you pick a subject, what's the Bible say about sin, what's the Bible say about marriage, those types of things. But a biblical theology is more thematic. So what does the Bible say? Right. If you read the entirety of Genesis Revelation, what's happening in the Bible? What are the big themes here? What is the big story? What's God doing? What's man doing? What's creation doing throughout you know, all of Scripture? Yeah. And without that, you really can't do systematic theology well because right. you, you run into texts, you run into things that maybe standalone don't make sense. Or they make sense in in less important things, like right. the moral story I just mentioned, David and Goliath. Um, and so biblical theology sort of tethers all that systematic into right. God's grand purpose. Let's talk about biblical theology, and let's dive in a little bit uh, into that. So so talk talk about typology. You mentioned yeah. that last night. How is that important in our understanding of biblical theology? Yeah, I think that our nature is to read a story and look for a conclusion and, okay, there's chapter one ended this way or chapter two ended that way. But the Old Testament doesn't play out that way. And really redemptive history doesn't play out that way. So much of what we get in the Old Testament is what we would call typology. They're types, shadows, forms. I used the illustration last night of a cardboard cutout of LeBron James of all people, (laughs) right? And if we knew he was coming, but there was a cardboard cutout in the room for weeks and weeks ahead of time, we, we would know that cardboard isn't LeBron James right? Um, but it's representative. It's telling us a story that something real is coming, right? right? And so much of the Old Testament plays out that way, where we see a shadow, a type of things to come. And so it, it, it can be confusing to read about, say, the sacrificial law, Levitical law in the Old Testament, and then read the New Testament and go, well, what does that have to do with anything? Right. Well, Hebrews 10 tells us that it was a shadow, it was a type pointing to Christ who would make one sacrifice for all, for all times, right. right? And so that's an example of a of a shadow, a typology that was fulfilled in the New Testament, we know in Christ. And so you see that continuously throughout the Old Testament. So it's just important to understand that a lot of the imagery we get, a lot of the practices and even historical events, and particularly the promises that God makes, right. are placeholders to help us know that in the future, he's going to fulfill it. And we connect those dots. It's like, ah, there he is. I don't know if you remember this. I was a this is when I was a student many moons ago. But but you made the comments when we were uh, walking through the Old Testament, and it's kind of stuck with me in in light of understanding typology. But you said the Old Testament does a good job of of giving us kind of uh, um, pictures, and the New Testament kind of gives principles in light of those pictures and, and the fulfillment of that. And so I was a student. That was nine ish years ago. But mm-hmm. it's to that point of typology, and again, that's that's helpful as we understand that. Um. So yeah, so, so let's let's look at a few uh, stories here uh, that that you decided to camp out on. Help us understand a little bit of Genesis as far as creation, uh, man, a little bit. How does that fit into that grand theme of God glorifying Himself by dwelling with a holy covenant people? Yeah, so I think uh, maybe there's seven different stories or, or passages that we looked at uh, as an overview that we can walk through. Two of them actually come from the first book, book of Genesis, and 
Um, you can't do a, an overview of the Old Testament without starting with creation. It's pretty really, important, right? Pretty important, <laughs> right? Pretty important. Um, and so we know from the beginning, number one, that God created a beginning. So God existed before the beginning. We know that God's doing something very purposeful. Right. So talking about creation, we have to understand that God in the Trinity was absolutely completely satisfied in and of himself. He wasn't lonely. Mm. He wasn't bored. He took the initiative to create. And, and it begs the question, why did he do it? You know, what's God up to here? And, and so we, we wanted to look at that, right? We want to look at that idea. That, and then in creating, he, he creates man. He creates an image bearer. So he creates a, a world, a temple, if you will, for him to, to dwell, to show his glory show us creative power, and then he creates an image bearer to have a fellowship with himself that would enjoy the pleasures of the creation that he made and also have perfect fellowship with God and be able to experience God's glory in a firsthand mm. way, right? And so he created man, he put his image in man, and he tasked man to be fruitful, multiply. He tasked them to manage the world that, um, that he gave. And so this sort of this Eden, this garden is this first, first sort of perfect temple, perfect like um, context for God to show his glory and dwell among a holy people. Yeah. Um, so obviously we're not there. Uh, right. Uh, we, we, it's, it's not perfect. It's not like it was. There's, there's sin and sickness and suffering. And so talk about uh, Genesis 3. Let's talk a little bit about the fall. What yep. happened and how is it, does the Lord continue from this point on to glorify himself by dwelling with his people in light of uh, the, the sin of man in Genesis 3. Yeah, so man quickly breaks fellowship with God, and we have the greatest uh, event really since the creation of humankind is the fall, is the fall of man. And, um, and it's a mighty fall. In Genesis 3.15, we see hope begin to glimmer. So yes, we live this side of the fall, but there's a great sort of part of God's you know, punitive action towards the uh, the serpent. He he tells the serpent a couple of things that I think ring for millennia, yeah. right? That we're still we're still waiting for the full fulfillment of that. He tells the serpent that his offspring and the offspring of the woman are going to be at war. He says, "I will put enmity between you." So that's the first thing. One thing I want us to realize is that is a very gracious and kind thing God did. Absolutely, that's a merciful yeah. thing because what he could have said was. You guys are getting along so well. You've both aligned against me. Go have fun together. You know, you want to be together? Go for it. Now I'm enemies with you. But God in his mercy placed enmity between the woman and the serpent, causing them to to be enemies, which is, is again, a gracious thing. And he not only says that they're going to be enemies, their offspring will be enemies. Mm. So those who follow after God will have enemies for those who follow after Satan. And if you remember um, when Jesus is addressing the Pharisees, he says that Satan is your father, mm-hmm. right? So that's, that's that, that going back to Genesis 3, 15. Um, and so that warfare will continue. It continues today, will continue on and, and, and get worse. But he says, too, that she is going to have an offspring. Singular. A singular. We know that from our great commentary of the Old Testament called the New Testament, <laughs> right? Uh, that she's going to have an offspring singular. and. Satan's going to bruise his heel, but that offspring is going to crush his head. Mm. So immediately, right after the fall, right as man is at, at the shameful point of wanting to hide from a holy God, having destroyed this, broken this perfect 
you know, creation, um, God begins to show them a redemptive plan yeah. that she's going to have an offspring and that offspring is going to deliver them and, and make all things right. So wanted to focus on that. Obviously that Genesis one, it's two, huge. three, you, you know, is a, is a huge story in the old Testament. It sets up this understanding. We, we started dwelling in holy state in perfect union with God in a perfect place. All that's broken and God immediately says, I'm going to restore yeah. it. And again, just just for for those listening, in our understanding of of the story of Scripture, from that point, uh, you really see two groups of people: this, the, those who are of the seed of woman, and really the the seed of Satan. So, so, the, and that's going to be the battle that, that that plays out throughout the rest of Scripture. Yeah, and I think it, it leads in our second story in Genesis right. twelve, because the world begins to populate, and God chooses to identify more clearly to the world who are his people and who are not his people. Right. And so he calls this guy named Abram in Genesis 12. Abram was from Ur of the Chaldeans. We know that the Chaldeans were sun worshipers. We have no indication that Abram wasn't a sun worshiper. Right. There's nothing that tells us that somehow God surveyed the world and Abram checked all the boxes and earned his right to kind of be the, you know, the representative of the human race or whatever. It wasn't a contest that way. But God in his sovereignty chooses Abram and he calls him to go someplace that you've never seen. And I'm going to give you a land. Abram obeys that. And the scriptures tell us in the New Testament that God counted that as righteousness. He credited him for that. And, and then God makes a promise to Abram in the midst of that. One of the, uh, and of course, we'll get to this next week. We, we don't want to jump ahead of ourselves too much with this is, as we're talking about biblical theology in the Old Testament. But the first time in all of scripture that we see this idea of, of faith or belief tied to righteousness is when we see uh, Abram or Abraham, that, that, that his faith in what God promised to create a people from him was accredited to him as righteousness. That's the first time in scripture that we see that coupled together of faith and righteousness. Obviously, that's going to play a, a vital role in the people of God, that, that faith mm-hmm. uh, will, will produce Righteousness that that there's that that they're linked there. And of course, we'll we'll get to that. Oh, uh, excited uh, for that next in the week. New Testament. Well, uh, and I'll say, let me loop that back to the creation story. When you see that Adam and Eve recognized that they were naked and shame before God, they were without physical clothes before right. and without physical clothes after. What happened? Well, that robe of righteousness that Christ puts on us that we see in the New Testament was stripped from them in shame and sin, right? And so for for God to be merciful and kind to credit Abram with that righteousness that was absolutely. lost in the fall was in just absolutely God's mercy absolutely. in all of it. So, which again, that, I mean, how glorious is this God uh, of God glorifying himself? How glorious and good is this God that we've already seen up to this point in Genesis? 12? Yeah, just get going. And the people of God continually refer back to his loving kindness enduring forever, right? They see it as well. They know as we do, you know, those who know Christ, we know his merciful forgiveness, right. and all we can say is he's a loving and kind God. You know, he calls Abram, and he makes a promise to him. We call it the Abrahamic covenant, right? And so wanted to spend a little bit of time on that to help people understand that God has called Abram. He says, I'm going to bless you. There's, I think, six things in that passage that God says, I'm going to do for you. Like, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to curse people that curse you, and I'm going to bless people that bless you and all this. And Abram's job is to go in faith. But he says, I'm going to bless you, and through you, I'm going to bless the nations. And so another one of these promises, like we saw in Genesis 3.15, there's the seed of the woman is going to deliver God's people, and now the seed of Abraham, the children of Abraham, or really the child of Abraham, is going to deliver God's people and bring that ultimate 
forgiveness and righteousness back to the original sort of state we were in the garden. Yeah, that's, and you did a good job of, of reminding us last night as, as you're teaching through this of, of that question of who's the seed of the woman? When's he going to come? Is it through Abraham? And that's going to be this question that, that we're going to, as we continue to walk through the Old Testament, when will this seed of the woman come? Uh, and, and so um, we, we see the Lord's plan to, to develop a people. He calls Abram. This people starts to grow. Uh, uh, and then we get to, to Jacob. We get to the 12 tribes of Israel. And, and uh, through circumstances, uh, through Joseph, they're in Egypt. Uh, and uh, because of, again, circumstances, the people of God get to Egypt. Uh, and, and over the course of years, they grow into a, a massive nation uh, to the point to where th- there's a little bit of a threat. There's a little bit of fear by the, the ruling Egyptian government. And then we pick up with this guy by the name of Moses. And so talk a little bit about Moses, how, how his role, uh, that section of scripture really from Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and just we're obviously uh, summarizing this piece. But sure. t- talk about Moses' role in that grand theme and, and how that ties in. Yeah, well, Moses is this uh, shadow or type of a deliverer, right? He sets the pattern of a deliverer. For one, he was delivered, should have been killed as an infant, right? right. Put in a basket in a river, was pulled out of the river, you know, uh, extracted from the river, grew up um, in Pharaoh's his household. And so Moses himself was delivered from certain death. And then God uses Moses to deliver his people. And he says, people become enslaved really by Egypt. They were there uh, as guests, as really um, honored guests of Pharaoh uh, when the first 75 of them came in. But now we're, we have Pharaohs that don't remember Joseph. They don't know the stories. So the people of Israel enslaved. And, and the scripture says in Exodus 2, you know, God heard their groanings. He remembered his mm-hmm. covenant. Uh, he says, those who persecute you and oppress you, I'm going to be against them as well. So your enemies will be my enemies. Your allies will be my allies, right, is, is really what he's doing. And so, so God um, calls Moses to deliver the people. Moses doesn't want to be that, that person, but God shows him through a burning bush, through a series of promises, identifying him as the, the great I am, and, and he sends Moses on to a task. And Moses does. He goes to Pharaoh and and, and we, you know, um, the people are delivered by a series of miracles and um, where God displays his might to the most mighty nation, really mm. probably in the history of the world. You know, 2,000 years. 2,000 yeah. years Egypt reigned. Um, no, no one's come close to that in world history. What, what, one of the, 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 the interesting things I think we see in scripture is the, the why of uh, so that, and I, this is somewhere in Exodus, and Kev, if you know exactly where this is, um, but it's so that uh, my people can worship me in the wilderness. So again, there's this calling of a people for the glory of the Lord so that he can dwell with his people. That's this, this, we see this push in Exodus. It's this deliverance from bondage. It's this deliverance from slavery so that the people can go uh, worship God in the wilderness. And again, that's, we're tying back to this theme yet again. And, well, and tying back to the theme, a key, exactly right, is that, God identifies them as his people. So, so the, um, the message to Pharaoh is let my people go. Right. Right. We see that. And God says in Exodus 3, even to Moses, like, I've heard my people. I've heard their groanings. You know, I, I'm their God. I'm going to show them that I've not forgotten them. And so God is drawing his people out to make them distinctly different. They're in Egypt and they're, they're losing their identity as a people. And they're a marginalized people. And so God draws a fence around them and says, these are my people. And he, he delivers them 
as his people. And then in the wilderness, he protects them as his people. And you see that sort of as the story advances. But one thing we can't miss here is that Moses is this prototype deliverer. And the people would have to wonder, and we would have to wonder reading our scripture at this point to go, is he the one? Right. Is Moses the one that is the seed of the woman, that is the seed of Abraham, that's going to deliver God's people eternally? And certainly we know in the story, it's not Moses. It's not Moses. Moses actually can't even enter the promised land right. because of sin in his own life. Yeah. So let's let's talk more about this idea of a tabernacle and kind of build off of that to, to get to David. So talk a little about the importance of the tabernacle as we see that of, of, of the people being out in the wilderness the importance of that tying into biblical theology. Yeah, so in Exodus 40, we see that God had instructed uh, Moses to build him a place to dwell. Tabernacle literally just means dwelling place. So God chooses to have a dwelling place among his people. And scripture's very clear. I think it's 15 or 16 times it says that Moses did exactly what God told him. So God said, do this, Moses did it. So he built this tent for God to dwell in. And they did it exactly the way that God had um, instructed them to do, because God wanted to display his glory to his people and dwell, dwell among them. And so he did a tabernacle, and the tabernacle was mobile. They'd move it around as they, as they went from place to place, and God would lead them as to where to go, right. and they would follow. You know, they followed day and night, and so he built the tabernacle. And I think it's important, for one, it, it, it highlights that God's desire is to dwell with a holy people. Right. He wouldn't just dwell with them randomly. They had a process. He, had a, uh, he wanted to make them holy or make the spot holy. And we know it's holy because God dwells there, but God took them through all of this process to, to build it. And, and I can imagine the encouragement or just a, think how amazed they would have been because the end of this, the tabernacle's done exactly the way God called it to be done. He appoints Aaron, the high priest, to work the tabernacle. And yet God's glory comes. Everyone has to make an offering and leave, right? right? No, one, no one can be there. And, in, and God's people just see God's glory on display, really, for the first time in, in a group like that ever, right? Yeah. I mean, even the garden would have been Adam and Eve, and, and some of the things you see, he makes a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15, but it's just Abraham, and Abraham's asleep. And, and so, um, so it's, a, it's a hugely important. And, and again, there's typology there. We see in Hebrews talks about the tabernacle being a type, a shadow. Um, but one of the things that we can't miss is, as Aaron now is appointed to be this mediator between God and men, they have to think, there he is. Yep. That has to be the promised seed, because now we have someone who can talk to God, who can take our sin to him, and we can make atonement for things um, through this man, Aaron. So if it's not Moses, maybe it's Aaron, but we know it's not. And so that goes on, the people in, enjoy the tabernacle, but of course they, they break God's laws again. There, there's just this pattern of sin and, and um, that comes back and they, uh, they ended up going into the land. There's, there's um, a season where judges ruled over them uh, and, you know, some good judges, some not good judges. But we end with Samuel, um, who was a good judge. Right. And at the end of Samuel, we see a turn in history that I wanted to highlight as well. We're getting to second Samuel, but what happens is the people look around them and they see that they've got this system where a judge is over them and they're obeying this God's law and they have to be made holy and they have to do all these things. But all the people around them have these kings and the kings come out and they have all of their, their arrayed and all of their battle gear and they have banners flying and they have processions and they have these banquets and all whatever. And they begin to grumble. Yeah. You know, they're just not content. Like, ah, 
we want a king? What's the deal? Like, how come we can't get a king? And so, and so finally, um, God just says, look, they've rejected me, Samuel, not you. Right. Give him a king. And so they give him a king, not a good king. Uh, battle happens. Saul hides behind the luggage. You know what I mean? <laughs> and so in the end, God in his kindness gives him a good king. Right. And that's where we find David, David. you know, in, on the scene there. And again, tying it back to this theme of a holy covenant people, we've seen, we've seen uh, um, the covenant to Abraham. We've seen this Mosaic covenant. And now with David, now we have this idea of this Davidic covenant. And again, that's the question. Is this the one uh, uh, where the seed of woman would come? And so talk a, little bit, talk a little about that Davidic covenant that we find there in Second Samuel 7. What's the importance of that? Maybe kind of uh, summarize that for us. And how does that tie in? Yeah, well, David is at rest here. You know, it, by the time we get to 2 Samuel 7, war's kind of done. There's peace. He and Nathan, the prophet, you know, they're talking. And David decides he wants to build God something special. He wants to put him in a house. Of course, God doesn't want to be in a house. God doesn't need David to tell him where to dwell. That's God's to do. And, um, but he flips the narrative on David and says, I'm actually going to build you a house. And not only am I going to build you a house, but there's going to be a ruler on this house That'll be what we know is an eternal ruler. Your, your kingdom will be established forever. Right. So one of your descendants after you will be on your throne forever in this house that I'm going to build. Man, David's excited. Yeah. He says, God, you're kind, you're good. You know, your, your steadfast love is, is forever. And, and so we recognize that as a Davidic covenant. And yet here's another promise that the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, we know that back in Egypt, when Jacob is dying, he actually prophesies over his son Judah that Judah's descendants would hold a scepter forever. Well, David was in the lineage of Judah, of the tribe of Judah. So we have to think, oh, David, he's the one. Right. He's the one. But we know David's not the one because God tells David another one is coming who is yeah. the one who will also be of the tribe of Judah, a descendant of Abraham, a descendant of Eve. And so the promise is of an eternal ruler, or, or David may not have understood it being eternal, but a forever ruler right. from the lineage of David who would deliver God's people. Right. And so we have uh, the Lord saying to David, hey, essentially you've got too much blood in your hands. Uh, and then his son Solomon ends up building this temple. It's a glorious temple. And again, Solomon uh, builds this uh, like Moses did the tabernacle to the T of what the Lord commanded. And so talk a little bit about that. Of, of We have uh, God uh, dwelling with man in the garden because of sin. Uh, man is out of God's presence. We we have this promise, uh, and then we have kind of this this picture at the end of Exodus of well, God's dwelling, uh, though in a tent with His people, and now we have this moment to where wow, there's a tabernacle uh, being constructed uh, where, where God will will be with His people. And so, talk a little bit about that uh, in Second Chronicles with Solomon in the temple there, how that ties in. Yes, yeah, so temple is very similar. Um, you know, the, the people had, um, they had a need, right? God desired to dwell um, with them. And so he commanded Solomon to build the temple. It says Solomon did exactly what he said. And God called out, you know, craftsmen and different, different skilled laborers. And they built this amazing place. And Solomon prays, you know, just praising God for this amazing place and asked God to really bless it. And, and yet even Solomon recognized, he says, even this dwelling place isn't enough to hold you. How could this brick and mortar, how could this block building, no matter how beautiful it is, hold the living God? Right. So Solomon knew that he had built something that in and of itself was a cardboard box cut out, right? To use right. our illustration, it's a type. But he did exactly what God did. God credited that as a sort of righteous act. And God purifies this temple by indwelling it. And what we see here is interesting is Solomon in his prayer, 
recognizes that more than anything, God's people need forgiveness. Right. He's hoping in his prayer that this temple would bring about finally the forgiveness of the iniquity that he sees in himself, that he sees in his people, and that he knows from the history of God's people. And so somehow he's hopeful that this temple is going to is going to be the ultimate answer to their forgiveness, which isn't, and yet it's a type, right? As God is building a new temple in the New Testament, we're going to talk about, you know, to dwell in permanently. And um, so we build the temple, you know, it's, it's really a pinnacle moment of God's people. It's right. one of these times where the Jews would have looked back and said, oh, if we could just go back to the, the days. The glory days, the heydays. Yeah, that's right. Yep, exactly. But the temple, you know, the temple doesn't fix their problem. Right, I mean, sin continues to abound, and after Solomon's death, it's like a fast track downhill. You know, uh, we see that his own son Rehoboam in nine thirty um, splits the kingdom, and you have some of the tribes, uh, you know, of Israel uh, form a northern kingdom. Some they form the southern kingdom, and and they're they're enemies. They fight each other at times. You see some alliances here and there, but for the most part, both the northern and southern kingdom just have atrocious kings. Terrible. Terrible kings. You have a few, you know, a few that bring a Josiah here and there, whatever, that bring some revival. But for the most part, you have that. And they both end up going in captivity. Um, the northern kingdom gone uh, by the Assyrians and never heard from again. The southern kingdom lasts a little bit longer, 120 years or so longer, but they go into captivity with the Babylonians. And so then you, you see all the, the prophets, we call the minor prophets, uh, throughout, you know, are speaking to the people in captivity in Babylon, and eventually Persia conquers Babylon. So they're they're speaking to say, God has not forgotten right. His promise. So when you and you see even in the prophets, as you start getting in, in Jeremiah, as you said, the minor prophets and some of these major prophets, the the grace of God, the mercy of the Lord to initiate to continue to remember His covenants, and and again, that's something. I'm the God of Jacob. He's remembering right. His covenant. And this is something we're going to see continually throughout the prophets, both the major and the minor. Um, as, as we talk about covenants in, in, in the prophets, uh, let's talk a little bit about Jeremiah. Uh, and, and there's a there's a promise that God uh, gives His people through the prophet Jeremiah. Um, and wanted you to to explain that. I know you talked about that some last night. Uh, the importance of that and how that's important uh, for us as the reader, for us as believers to understand as we understand the story of Scripture. And so talk a little bit about uh, that, that covenant that's, uh, that the Lord speaks through Jeremiah. Yeah, Jeremiah 30 um, and 31, uh, just really key passages to understand this big story of Scripture. It's hard to um, imagine from their perspective that this is coming, right? Because their relationship with God was um, uh, under the law, right? And it was... And they're constantly failing, God in his mercy, redeeming them, delivering them, bringing them out. But in the time of Jeremiah's writing, they would have been in captivity, again, under now the most powerful military might they'd ever seen. Zero hope that they're going to get out. And it was only through God's stirring of of Cyrus the Great that, you know, where Ezra and Nehemiah and some of the waves come back, that they were actually delivered. But Jeremiah gives this, uncharacteristically to Jeremiah, this very hopeful Thing, this hopeful message in Jeremiah 30, 31. And he says, first of all, your sin caused this. Right. And your sin is incurable. You have a wound that's incurable. Mm-hmm. And you're hated by the nations. You're, you're ridiculed and mocked. And what God tells the people through Jeremiah is he did it. He allowed that to happen. God allowed their sin to draw them where sin draws you. Right. Right. 
And God has um, put him in that captivity state in order to display his goodness as he delivers them out and display his power to the nations, right? And um, But then he, he turns and says, but I'm going to change this. I'm going to defeat your enemies on, on your behalf. I'm going to do the impossible. I'm going to heal your wounds. And we want to go, why? Well, he says, I want to show that you're my people. You know, they're making fun of, they're, they're persecuting Zion. These are my people. And so in, in uh, kind of middle part of Jeremiah 30, he reiterates the Abrahamic covenant. And, um, and then he says that a leader is going to come among you who's going to stand before me face. Who has the right to stand before God? Well, we know who has the right. right. We're not there yet, right. but we're getting there in our story. So there was another one to come who could stand face to face with God himself. And then he gives us, this promise of a new and better covenant, right? He says that I'm going to write my law on your hearts. You're going to know me personally, not through Aaron, not through Abraham, not through, you know, whomever uh, that would be the high priest at the time, but you're going to know me. You will all know me. All my people will know me and all my people will have my law written on their hearts. And, and um, man, that's a huge promise. Yeah. And that's just this, that rings out for, for, you know, hundreds of years, really waiting for that new covenant to come. And, and that's a typology, right? It's a promise, right? but it, man, it's a promise that they would held on. And from there, they're delivered they're, They go back and they rebuild the temple and God shows up again in, in glory and, and, and fills that temple and, and establishes his people again in the promised land. And of course, then they fall away again. And then we we have this 400 years where there's just, just nothing. Yeah. Yeah. And it's in those 400 years uh, that where there's going to be silence that some of these big promises that the old Testament is going to talk about are, are have got to be ringing uh, in the heads and the hearts of, of the people. Yeah. I think there's so much that the, the people of Israel would be looking forward to or, or longing for during those times, you know, practically they're under Roman captivity, you know, they want physical evidence, but there's a spiritual thing going on and they've got to know they're looking for a person. There's a one to come. And if you think about it, just in a review, you, you've got God's promise that he would have a seed from the woman, offspring of the woman would deliver God's people. It would also be the seed of Abraham, who also would come in, in the line of Judah and hold the scepter with power. He would also be as the deliverer from Egypt was in Moses. Um, he would be one of David's descendants who would reign on the throne forever. Isaiah talks about the one to come being the suffering servant. Mm. Daniel talks about the one to come being the son of man, right? Um, Jeremiah is looking for the deliverer, the one who can stand in the face of God and, uh, and not have to shrink back, who has a right to be there. Uh, it goes on and on. And I think in Zechariah, we see that he prophesies a triumphant king who would ride on a donkey. He prophesies a priest that would wear a crown. He prophesies that a son would come who would be struck down. You see all of these prophecies ringing out. And Malachi ends with, there's going to be one to come who's going to make the announcement. The one is here. And so 400 years, all of this, you know, like like labor pains in birth, like building up to something that all of what God is doing, all these types and shadows are pointing to the one he would fulfill every one of them without exception. And we'll uh, obviously pick up on who that one is, that seed of woman next week. So thanks, Kev, for summarizing Old Testament for us. And uh, we'll, we'll talk to you guys next week. Great. Thanks, Brett. 
You've been listening to the Lightbears Institute podcast, a production of Lightbears Ministries. For more information, visit lightbears.com. Thank you.